How you doing? I'm Doug Devaney, and you're listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora. At long last, we get to cover all four corners of the globe, which is a weird phrase when you give us any kind of consideration. But we have gone northwest, northeast, and southeast. And so finally, we get to talk diaspora and the southwest with actor, writer, comedian Joe Neary. Joe was born in Coventry, but raised in Cornwall by a father from Dublin and a mother from the Midlands. After graduating from university, she carved out a niche for her one-woman shows, being nominated for a Perrier Award in Edinburgh in 2004, and then appearing in films such as Darkest Hour and Suffragette, as well as working with Mitchell and Webb, Armando Iannucci and Johnny Vegas, with whom she's arguably best known, having played Judith in Ideal. On top of all this, she's a gifted storyteller, artist, puppeteer and singer, has an infectious joy of life, and will no doubt blush at all of this before I ask Joe Neary, how are you doing? Um, that's a very lovely introduction. Thank you for that. I'm feeling swollen with pride now and in admiration of this fictional Joanna Neary that I don't recognise. Yeah, not bad. Juggling homeschooling and trying to keep a career going, you know. How are both of those, the homeschooling and the, and, and the career juggling? The homeschooling I've kind of let completely slide really. I'm letting them get away with doing maybe one little task a day because I don't think it's worth the mental, emotional, uh, you know, uh, stress. But I read a really wonderful quote the other day by Catherine Whitehorn who died recently. She was a journalist and there's an article in The Guardian, things that she wished she'd, her younger self had known. And she said in her 40s she wished she'd known that her children would be okay and not to worry about them. And the one thing she regrets is not giving them what they didn't have at school. So going to concerts, listening to classical music, you know, um, building stuff out of wood, all the stuff you don't really get to do so much at school. And that really was a comfort because I thought, yeah, I'm going to use this time in a really positive way and try and do the stuff that they can't do at school. So, so are you engaged with, with writing or, or anything like that during, the, during these, these dark, dark months, years of COVID? I'm very lucky because uh, very early on I got Pad to build me a recording studio under the stairs. I'm not actually there right now, but I've got a recording studio under the stairs. So I've been able to record for Radio 3, Radio 4 and my podcast and a book, um, a, a, a play by somebody for their book, book, uh, book podcast. And also, um, what else have I done under there? Oh, yes, an advert for um, a well-known furniture company for television. So that's been good. So I've been working, you know, in that way. And also, yes, I've been writing and recording a lot. And I just started doing a new podcast for children called Radio Amusant, which is half French, half English. Ah, très bon. <laughs> What's the difference then between sorry, doing work like that and then putting to together your own work? Well, the work that someone else's is paid, which means I have to meet a deadline and achieve a certain level and deliver which is really satisfying especially with voiceovers I love that about voiceovers you know you put everything into them and you know when you've done a good job because they you know if you haven't done a good job they can't use it whereas when you work for yourself um, I kind of produce a lot of material and I sort of have to go well that's going to have to do now because otherwise you know when you've got no deadline you can endlessly tweak and uh, you know when you're working for yourself you just have to kind of go well actually that's going to have to do I can't spend three years on this one recording and I've got 20,000 other ideas and so it, I don't think it's quite so perfected, the stuff I do myself, but it's so free, which is really nice. It's, it's my soul food, I think. You work with an awful lot of voices. Uh, inside. Was, that, was that a capacity you had very, very young? Oh, I'm not sure about that, but I'm, I love um, doing lots of different characters. And I remember years ago, I wanted to try and make my characters talk to each other. So I had a very complicated setup with a tape player and a dictaphone. And uh, now, of course, you can do that, can't you, on, on Logic? You can have 10 of your characters all talking to each other. 
which is really thrilling. I love doing lots of voices and all of my, my um, things I love doing have kind of become honed in later years and I've been able to do the things I love. For example, doing shows for children. I do a single person shows with lots of puppets. And so I'm able to do all the different puppet voices. And that's very satisfying. Uh, do you remember Captain Pugwash? Well, the man who did those voices was uh, did all of the voices, didn't he? And also the other one was uh, Fireman Sam. Was it John Alderington? It was did John all the voices. I love that man. Yeah, fantastic. So yeah, I love doing voices. I love doing all the... But I can't do my nan's Irish accent. It's too strange. It's just like nothing I've ever heard. Do, do Irish accents evade you? Yeah, completely. I mean, I can do a stupid one. I can do an annoying one, like a stupid running commentary in the kitchen, you know. But I've never broadcast one. And I think there's a bit of a thing now, isn't there, where you're not meant to do an accent that isn't really yours. It's, a sort of, it's meant to be on PC, so I can't really do a northern actor accent because why don't they just get a northern actor? So it's a bit tricky. But when you're doing comedy, then, you know, I, should you be sending up people in the north as a, as a southern person? It's kind of called punching down, isn't it? Comedy, comedians from the northwest saying you shouldn't, as, an act, as a comedian, do a northwest accent as part of your routine because it's kind of laughing at the northwest. Um, you know, and you've got no claim to make that accent. But I think I do have a claim to do an Irish accent and a Welsh accent because my parents are Irish and Welsh. Um, so I don't feel bad about doing those, but I can't really do a very good Irish accent. I don't want to do a substandard accent on stage, although for comedy you can. But my Welsh nan, I do her as a character on stage. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a very, very good impression of her. It sounds exactly like her, <laughs> she said. Which is weird because she's dead, so it's, you know, kind of really odd for her relatives to hear this, but it's true. It's a similar thing. I was talking to Janet Behan, who's recently done a one-woman show about her grandmother, Kathleen Behan, and so forth, and she she pulls out this imitation uh, of Kathleen, and she goes sort of like, uh, nobody will get the fact that how just how good this is. That's it. Although I spoke to my, I spoke to my third cousin the other day, uh, who I, I'd been at, I've never spoken to him before. He's a very interesting man, and uh, his, his uh, mother was my grandmother's sister, so he's my third cousin. Oh, I'm Welsh. She's Welsh. And he said to her, she had a Midlands accent. I said, no, she didn't. She had a Welsh accent. And I said, um, oh, I tell you, I like Shakin Stevens. He's good looking and he's Welsh and he's got a lovely voice. What would you want? And he went, yeah, you're right. Actually, she does. That is exactly. <laughs> but my Irish grand, I can't do her accent. It's too difficult. Well, this will segue us nicely into talking about your parents in that case, because you say one's from Ireland, one's from Wales. So um, uh, your dad's from Dublin. Yes. Yes. And your mum's of Welsh heritage, but was born in Coventry. Is that right? That's right. So the thing that my parents' parents have got in common is that they all moved to Coventry for work. A lot of people moved from Ireland to Coventry for work. It's a huge centre then for building motors, big motor trade there. And uh, yeah, so my dad was seven when they moved to Coventry. I think it was really difficult because he left all his family, you know, all the cousins, all the aunts, all the huge network of Irish family, and the streets that he loved and knew. And it was a real wrench, I think, for him to move to, to England. And he wasn't impressed with Coventry. I'm not entirely sure how they met, but they were both in Coventry. They went to different schools. They probably had a friend in common. Uh, yeah, probably had a friend in common. They were both quite hippie-ish and very, very young, very young. My mum was 18 and uh, when they met and my dad was 23. Um, yeah, so they probably had friends in common. There's five children and I'm the eldest, I'm the eldest of five. And my dad moved to Cornwall because he got a job at um, Helston School as a maths teacher. And so he moved to Cornwall and he chose Cornwall um, out of all the different teaching posts because he wanted his children to grow up somewhere beautiful. 
and a bit more remote, you know, with the lovely beaches and the, and the countryside. And he didn't like Coventry. He said you used to have to get dressed up to go to the shop, which he found really strange. So everyone gets dressed up, he said, when you get running in Coventry. So he went to Cornwall where nobody really cares what you look like. It was really quite idyllic growing up in Cornwall because Cornwall was sort of 25 years behind the rest of the country. So Cornwall in the 70s was like Cornwall, was like the England in the 50s. It was no traffic on the roads. Um, just it, it was the, the mines were still open when they moved down. South Crofty mine was still open. It was a really idyllic place to grow up. It was very safe. You could roam the streets. We used to be in fields with wild horses up on the hill behind the house. And yeah, it was a really fantastic place to grow up. Uh, and I wondered if my dad took us to Cornwall because it was a bit more like Ireland, really, than the Midlands could ever be, really. It's it's interesting though because like uh, Cornwall and Ireland have shared a certain like uh, Celtic heritage. Yes, of course. Yes, yes, very much the Celtic folklore, fairies, pixies. So in Cornwall we've got pixky. Is it pisky? Piskies, they're called pisky. And then I in Ireland, of course, have got their leprechaun. Yeah. So yeah, there's a huge folk uh, tale tradition, isn't there? Do you look back on those days with a with, with a certain fondness? Then I mean, so the, the the freedom of fields and wild horses and all that. Oh yeah, it's great. But at the time, you're bored of it, aren't you? You know, I was really glad to leave Cornwall by the time I did when I was 16. They didn't feel like there was any opportunities there. I took the beautiful locations for granted. Every every summer, every Easter, we were on the beach. We never went abroad. I didn't go abroad until I was 21. You know, and I'd left home and everything um, when I was 17. So yeah, I did. I really took for granted, and now I really appreciate it. And going down, taking my family down there now to Cornwall, and going to the beaches where the tourists don't know them, but the locals know where they are, and they're kind of empty and unspoiled, and the sea's magnificent. So yeah, I think I I did have a very idyllic childhood, very very happy. Um, uh, yeah, fantastic. And do you know what really is odd for me is I didn't get bullied in Cornwall, and I don't know why because I would have been perfect. I was so odd. I was four foot, national health glasses. And my clothes, my parents had an antique shop. So my clothes were like um, 1920, literally Edwardian clothes to secondary school in the eighties. And nobody ever picked on me and I don't know why. And so even though we were quite different, we were kind of admired for it. And I don't know why. So when I was 11 and I moved to the secondary school, the bully, the school bully, Jeanette came up to me and she went, you're Joanna Nuri? And I said, yeah. And she went, what have you got in your bag? And she made me open my bag and I showed her I had some books out the new library, Animals in Art was one of them. They were all friends with me, the bullies. It's really, it was really curious. There was a real leveling in Cornwall because nobody had very much. Where I'm from in Red Ruth is below the EU poverty line, very, very poor part of the world. And so there was none of this, what are your shoes like? Where did you get that coat? There was nothing like that because nobody had anything. So it was a really idyllic place to grow up in that way. Although I, there was bullying, I didn't get it. What age did you move across from, from Coventry to Cornwall then? I think I was four and we moved down and we moved into a caravan while my dad was waiting to find somewhere for us to live properly. And we lived in a caravan with my Irish nan for six weeks and I was sent to the local school and it was brilliant. Can you imagine it? I was like a little gypsy child for a short amount of time. So brushing our teeth in the field and my parents would put me on the bus on my own at the age of four. And I remember feeling like I was really important and I was going to the office. <laughs> and I remember sitting in the school and it was like a cathedral. And I remember my beautiful book that I was writing and I was four years old. Can you imagine sending off a four-year-old on their own on a bus? I mean, it was a school bus, you know, but still, that was, I mean, it was fantastic. My memories are so, so strong growing up, you know. Yeah. 
Tell us about your grandmother. Betty. Betty's 104 now. She's fantastic. I wrote down, recently I rang her up and I wrote down everything she said, because I think it's quite nice for posterity, isn't it? I said to her, Nan, what's your advice? What's your life advice? Oh, I don't like to give advice, Joanna. And then she proceeded to give me 20 minute talk about great ideas for life. So she's, um, she was educated, which was quite unusual, I think, in the 90s. She was born in 1916 and she was the youngest of, I think, maybe eight children and they were all boys except for her. And my great uncles sound quite fun. There was one Paddy used to sit in the greenhouse and he had a huge ball of hair. <laughs> my granddad said he remembers him sitting in the greenhouse. They were quite eccentric and running wild. And because she was the youngest of a load of boys, she was very tomboyish, you know. And she's, uh, she's quite brilliant, really. She's lived a long life. And my relatives think it's because she's completely selfish. The reason that she's lived a long life is because she completely puts herself first and she lets everyone else do everything for her, like the queen. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, she's kind of got good mental health. I mean, I need to take a leaf out of her book. My dad's followed after her, actually. My dad's incredibly selfish, but it's kind of nice because he's 70-something now, early 70s, I can't remember now, 73. And he knows how to look after himself. So actually this year has been great because we know that they're fine. My gran, the, Betty, who's 104, she's just totally had a brilliant year she's really looked after herself she's found ways to cope she's an incredible survivor she went for she's 104 and she was going for a walk every day during lockdown and she said she put two coats on and it was absolutely brilliant she said and so it's lovely because there's none of that you know trying to get you to worry about them in my family yeah when my when my grand passed 100 she got about I think is it three or five thousand it would be euros wouldn't it from the Irish government and uh, her daughters told her to put it aside for her funeral well always looking ahead then yeah, exactly. It's sensible, isn't it? You're listening to The Plastic Podcasts. We all come from somewhere else. Joan Neary's story may at some levels be typical of the diaspora, family moving across the water for work, searching for a place to belong. But in other ways, it bucks the trend, with her parents moving away from the family units to the isolation of 70s Cornwall. We talk family connections and a brief warning... Joe Neary is the only person who will ever get away with calling me Dougley Doo. So my mum and dad moved to Cornwall and were very isolated. They had five children down there and they, we didn't have any babysitters. There was no family close by to help out. So we were very, very much a closed unit, really. My mum and dad never went out together anywhere. We, they never hired a babysitter. It was always all of us together. But when I was 15, they went and watched. Sid and Nancy at the Regal Cinema in Redruth while I babysat. That was my f- the first time I remember them going, going off on their own. Um, but then w- when I was younger, we used to go to Coventry to visit our relatives. We'd go up to Coventry and visit the Irish family. So my granddad, Kevin, I was going to say to you, when I said about my parents having an antique shop in Cornwall, my dad's f- Irish family, there's a whole line, I think, of kind of wheeler dealers. And it's something my mum and dad have got in common, both their their, their family have threads of wheeler dealers. So my granddad, my Irish granddad, Kevin Neary, was a ga- professional gambler. <laughs> he used to like work out the odds on the horses and all that. He was really into maths, you know, and he, was a, he would sell and buy whatever he could. And my dad then was the same, big love of the horses and uh, wheeling and dealing. And I've, yeah, I've actually got a notebook from when I was six, so I tried to be into horses too. And I'd written down a grid of all numbers, like, you know, trying to work out the form. And then like things written on, go on number three, come on. And like, just all the things I ever heard with a horse racing written down. <laughs> come on, go, go. It's just really sweet. <laughs> Trying to be like my dad. 
So when you went up to Coventry, what were the what, what, what was it? A, was it a whole new world to you? I've got an incredible memory. I remember my third birthday and my um, tube of Smarties. So I didn't know what it was because I'd never had any sweets till then. And I thought it was a rattle. I was shaking it. And my mum said, Joanna, it's sweets. And so my cousin, John, I think one of us opened it and it exploded all over the floor. And John leapt to the ground on all fours and started eating them all. While I stood there watching because I didn't know what they were. <laughs> so I've got a very good memory of Coventry. of going to the park um, near Humber Avenue and the slides seeming to be, you know, a mile high because you're, you know, one and a half foot tall. My, my relatives there are still there, a lot of Irish relatives still in Coventry. My aunties are there. They've still got their Irish accents, but my dad got rid of his when he was um, in his early teens because he was teased um, for his Irish accent. So he deliberately ironed it out, which he regrets now, really, because it was part of him, you know. Yeah, he got rid of it because of being mocked. Yeah, but yeah, I love going to Co Coventry's great. It's really great. It's nice to visit. I mean, Coventry Cathedral is fascinating and the centre of the town, like the middle aged, you know, Middle-aged, you don't call them middle-aged, do you ancient pubs? Middle-aged pubs. <laughs> well, that's a great city to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. I love being by the sea. Yeah. When I went to I went to Dublin with my dad in 1999 for Bloomsday, and it was also the uh, World Cup. And we went to a pub near the Botanical Gardens in Dublin where my dad worked when he was young, or he used to go when he was young, probably. Yeah, he wouldn't have worked there. <laughs> There's silence in the Irish pub in England's got a night. I didn't know about there, any antipathy. And when I saw a statue to the IRA in Dublin, I was shocked, you know. I mean, at 99, I was about, I would have been, how old? 26 or something, 27. And I said to my dad, it's a statue to the IRA. And he went, well, they're heroes here. He said, you get taught propaganda in English schools. And it was really interesting going to Dublin with him. I really loved it there. And the pubs, the pubs are like churches in Dublin. And I went to Neary's for my first pint. And I was a bit embarrassed in case people knew I was being a tourist, you know. But yeah, my first part of Guinness in Dublin, I went to Neary's pub. <laughs> yeah. When you went up to Coventry and, and, and saw those relatives, I mean, so what was what, what are your memories of it, I suppose, is the question I'm asking. Well, my relatives in Coventry, compared to my family in Cornwall, are very, very normal. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but they're into things like Andrew Lloyd Webber and... Um, uh, uh, you know the latest fashion and doing up their home and redoing their kitchen the normal things that normal people do that's what they do and my family in Cornwall aren't like that at all so they were kind of exotic you know we were my, my dad is quite different really to to the rest of to his sisters um, uh, although they all have a very strong moral um, upbringing which I was passed which I had passed on to me so I think that my Irish auntie one in particular kind of doesn't really approve of my dad and our family and then when we recently met, she was quite surprised to find out we've actually got a lot in common. And so we've remade a connection there because although on the face of it, my dad was, you know, in his early 20s, trained to be a teacher. I think his relatives never believed he became a teacher. They don't believe he did a degree. They don't believe he, he trained to be a teacher. That is really odd, eccentric family stuff, which I suppose everyone's got in it. it sounds odd, but everyone's got this stuff. So when I went to Coventry, they did seem quite exotic in their normality. And I quite loved the fact that things were in their place. You know, whereas in Cornwall, with my parents being antique dealers and my dad being a maths teacher and us moving house and stuff and, you know, five children on one income in a very poor part of the world. There was, you know, real disparity between that and, and Coventry with, you know, two income households and, and everything in its place, proper middle class normality. Yeah, it's exotic to see them. Exotic, but I didn't want it. Yeah, I mean, was your dad considered exotic down in Cornwall then? 
I don't think so. When he was an antique dealer, he looked hilarious. He looked like a typical Irish dealer. He had a, a leather, brown leather blues on jacket. And at one point he grew a moustache. We used to call him Lovejoy. And uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was a brilliant antique dealer. He was really, he had a really good nose. So he used to go to jumble sales every Saturday, all of us in a van, and we'd all bundle out and he'd uh, get the treasures. That was great. But yeah, he's a bit of an outsider in the family, I think. He's a bit of a black sheep, really which is strange because, uh, well, it's just strange, isn't it, to have a black sheep? Because actually, when you've got the same parents and the same upbringing, you've got more in common than you know. I don't know, the black sheep thing's a strange one. It, it, it is a strange one, and it, it brought me around to, 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 to a thought, and it, was, it kind of relates back to what you were talking about with um, voices and accents. It's that sense, uh, and your dad sort of deciding not to have his accent because of being teased for it. And things like that kind of feeds into this which is this sense that uh, other people will define you by the accent that you have and so I was thinking when you when you do engage with a voice for a character or for um, or for a puppet um, or for when you're doing voiceovers or, or, or narrating stories and things like that is there something that happens when you when you do a voice and you sort of go it's this voice because it's this kind of character do you know that's a really good question I think that for me, right, character comedy or creating a character, what's really good is to base a character on a real person, even if that's just your starting point, because real people are way more interesting than a template. So I never got that thing of going, I'm going to do a hairdresser, they're going to be an idiot, they're going to have a London accent, because it's it's nothing, it's not real, it's not based on anything. But if you go, I'm going to do a character that's based on this belligerent woman who questioned where a smell was coming from for far too long, and was really quite annoying and a bit nasal and she's very pedantic it's this one person I know and then I'm going to use her voice an impression of her voice and fill out the world so give her a boyfriend give her some encounters give her some stories and some journeys and see how she would react so for me creating a character the the voice um, that the person has is so for example I, I couldn't do I'm going to do a character with an Irish accent it's just not interesting to me because what is that it's so broad, but if I went, I'm going to do a character based on the fact that my nan, my Irish nan, turns on me. You know, she's one minute she's sweetness and light, and the next minute she's like a, a witch, a, you know, devil. She's not just an Irish accent. People are so, you know, interesting and contradictory. I think an accent's just a tiny little part of a character, but it can be useful, and you've got to be careful because an accent in other people's eyes can change things if, you, if you're not careful. If I did a Welsh character, I've got about three different Welsh accents. One of them's a bit of a, a happy airhead. One of them's a very belligerent, grumpy older person. And the other one is, um, is my great gran, <laughs> an old boot. So they're all very different. And, uh, and, they, and they give a different angle on, the, the, the material has to suit the person that's saying it. I can't explain it better than that. Doug is hopeless. No, that, that's uh, that's that's ab absolutely brilliant. No, every answer is a good answer. Um, but the, the the thing I suppose is that because, because both Britain and Ireland are, are very very small countries, and and yet we have a wide variety of accents and things like that, and a whole load of presumptions based upon them. Forty miles away from Liverpool, there's Manchester, uh, and yet the accents hugely different, and the approach of the two two cities to each other is massively different as well. It's funny, isn't it? Because this country has been invaded by everybody. And I wonder if there's a bit of a territorial thing going on, because even in Cornwall, it was Redruth versus Camborne, and there's only three miles between them. But there was a real rivalry, just as there's a real rivalry between Pool School and, you know, a Luggan.
it's like it's territorial isn't it a bit that kind of clan thing um I mean when we moved to Cornwall we were Emmets so in Cornwall you get called an Emmet if you move from up country as they call it um and I said when am I going to stop being an Emmet then and they said 25 years you have to live here and then you stop being an Emmet so when I got to 20 29 or whatever I said am I now a non-Emmet they went no it's just gone up <laughs> It wasn't a nasty unacceptance, it was a playful one. And my parents have been very accepted in Cornwall. They've never been seen as outsiders. I think they've been there now for 40 odd years. And I think that they consider themselves really to be part of the local community. Um, and yet they don't have Cornish accents. Cornwall's a funny one, you know. I was about 18 working in a pub and this old woman started complaining about how it's free to get into Cornwall and you have to pay to get out, you know, on the Tamar Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> they basically just want to cut them so this old woman wanted to cut off Cornwall at Tamar and float off <laughs> anyway that's a bit irrelevant you say that your parents weren't outsiders I mean have you considered yourself an outsider you observe people an awful lot and I'm wondering if that's a that's a kind of distance thing or that's interesting yeah I don't know really I think um I, th I think I do feel like a bit like an outsider and I think that's why art school was so great because suddenly all the outsiders were together <laughs> So my upbringing in Cornwall was quite unorthodox in a way, you know, a large family and, a, um, you know, my dad being self-employed, my mum not working at all. It wasn't really typical of the Cornish families. And then going to art school for seven years, I managed to do in the end. And that's where, you know, lots of outsiders are in art, aren't they? Uh, and then living in Brighton for over 20 years as well. I think um, you sort of find your find your clan, don't you? You sniff each other out in this world, I'm, I'm in Britain, in England. I mean... Um, when I did Ideal with Graham Duff, almost all the women in that show are from Coventry. And it's really lovely finding, you know, people that have got something in common. And also with Irish people, I remember in the early 90s, it was very fashionable to be Irish. Do you remember that? I remember I was at art college with a very posh boy, Richard. And, uh, and he's, yes, I, I'm actually Irish. I'm actually Irish. My father's Irish. And it was just hilarious. It felt like you wanted a bit of that, you know, bit of what seemed to be a bit exotic and a bit rough. And there was this real uh, brilliant idea that all Irish men were a bit sexy. And um, I do a comedy now with Richard Dibble and Al Kerr, and we do a routine where we're all, where um, me and uh, me and Al are Irish so folk singers. <laughs> He's really full of himself. It's so beautiful. He's so funny. Yeah. So we do these characters that are Irish, and it's just fantastic. I've been uh, been touring the country now. He's <laughs> just like sleeping his way around the country, and I'm his his put upon little Irish wife that he's about to get rid of. He's about to dump. I'm not what am I talking about now, Dougley Doo? Joe Neary there, and we'll be back with Joe in a moment. But first, the old call to action. Lonely, isolated, in need of a place to be, then why not subscribe to the Plastic Podcasts? Simply scroll down the homepage at www.plasticpodcasts.com, enter your email address in the space provided, and with one confirmatory click, you'll be joining the party every Podcast Thursday. Please note, definition of party may vary from dictionary standard. And now the brief interlude we call The Plastic Pedestal, where I ask an interviewee to talk about a member of the diaspora of personal, political or cultural significance to them. This week, a trio of voices, as Patrick Gall, Angela Billing and Niall Gibney of Liverpool Irish Centre nominate characters both local and global. There's a fellow called Tommy Walsh who started the old Irish Centre. He was the first manager, I think the first chairman as well. Tommy Walsh was uh, 
second generation. His dad was an Irish speaker from a place called Carrow in Galway. Uh, he died about ten years ago. He was uh, he instigated the the collections to start the old Irish Centre. As I say, he's the first chairman, the first manager. I can't remember when he stopped being manager, um, but he also then started the second Irish Centre, which was uh, you know an extraordinary thing to do. I'm not sure how old he was at the time, probably probably 60-ish. So having gone through the pain of the first Irish Centre closing, he then sort of like got up off the canvas and started the second Irish Centre, which is where we are now. We owe him a huge debt and he should be on the pedestal if anyone should be. He was a great storyteller. He told a very nice story about when electricity came to his part of Ireland and uh, the Irish Electricity Board were very keen to make sure that the, um, the old people knew and understood electricity. And there was one chap in the village who wasn't using his electricity, so they called on and they said, why aren't you using your electricity? He said, of course I am, I love my electricity. He says, well, uh, well, this is very odd because the meter doesn't say you are. Can you tell us how you use it? He says, well, I come in from the fields every night in the dark and I switch the electricity on, it's absolutely marvelous. I go over and get me matches, I light all the candles and switch the electricity off. <laughs> And that was, uh, that was a very typical Tommy Walsh story. He told stories all the time. He was a very, very good storyteller. And um, he was always sort of, he was always amazed by humanity. And he, he, he said to me once, he said, uh, this is typical of the Kerry people. He'd just been to Kerry. He said, I went in and said, um, uh, I had an English number plate on the car and he didn't like me. And uh, he said, I'll have, you know, his groceries. He paid for his groceries, then he said, I'll have a lottery ticket. And he gave in his, his pound or his euro, whatever it was. And uh, the person went and got the ticket, came back and said, you haven't won. And uh, never gave him the ticket, just got rid of him. So, uh, every time he went to Ireland, uh, well, in fact, he just, he just had a fount of tales. And he was involved in all sorts of things, Tommy. He was involved with uh, the hunger strikers, the Gaelic Association, uh, the GAA. He, he had tales about everybody and everything and uh, the greatest thing I ever had when I was talking to Tommy was if I knew something he didn't know about Ireland and uh, it was like such a great feeling to be able to tell him something that he didn't know you know he taught me lots of songs uh, and I still I still think of him you know all the time you can't walk into the Irish Centre without thinking about him and we're very lucky because the last 20 years the three of us have known great great Irish people going to the Irish Centre. I'm sure others would have other people to put on the pedestal. Yeah, I'd have to agree with Patrick on Tommy there as well, and also Joe England, and another person who, who probably hasn't, you'd say, hasn't done anything, like, outstanding, but uh, he's just, he's just a magnet for Irish people, and that's Phil Fitzpatrick. He's a bit of a legend in the Irish Centre. He hasn't done anything like Tommy's done, but it's just him being there. Everyone is drawn to him, all the young people, anyone new comes in, everybody loves Phil. And he's 90 now and he's just, he's just, you'd want to be Phil because he's just full of energy and he's been in pulling all the garden up at the back during lockdown and filling the skip up. And he's just an inspiration to everyone in the Irish Centre, really. My daughter, my daughter says that we should have Phil Fitzpatrick merchandise. <laughs> Is John Lennon okay? He's got Irish, Irish uh, hair. That's good. Uh, 
just the services to to Liverpool, and obviously, if it wasn't for well, where would Liverpool be without the Irish? You know, we we'd have half the city. We wouldn't have as many roads. We wouldn't be famous in China because of the Beatles. You know what I mean? We, where would we be without without the Irish? Nowhere. We wouldn't be, you know, England's third or fourth largest city. We would be down at the bottom. We'd be like Hull. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Or somewhere. No offence to anyone from Hull, but it is what it is. I mean, that's a very good point now, Mix. If, you, if you're listening to uh, Fergal Keane's series at the moment, um, How the Irish Built Britain or something, uh, the series starts off in, on Merseyside in West Kirby. Uh, but both the first two episodes have lots of stuff about Liverpool. And he keeps emphasising that this is such an important Irish city. And then the third in the series is about the music. And Lennon is is all over that. And interestingly, John Lennon, uh, towards the end of his short life, uh, became very interested in his Irish roots. Bought an island off uh, Mayo. Uh, went there on at least one or two occasions. Uh, and of course wrote songs about Ireland uh, and uh, w- w- was clearly much, you know, r- very connected to Ireland, as were the others. Patrick, Angela and Niall there. And if you want to hear more of our Liverpool Irish Centre interview or any of our archive, just go to www.plasticpodcasts.com and click on the link to the episodes page. Alternatively, you can find us on Amazon, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Now back to Joe Neary, and we return to tales of her family. We also get to briefly discuss James Garner as God, or I do. My my dad was brought up to be Catholic, you know, and he's got a real affection for um Catholic. He was he went to a college. What were they called? The Brothers. Were they called the Brothers? The, the really Christian horrible. Brothers. Yeah, the Christian Brothers. Jesus. He tells me about the Christian Brothers and the teachers he had. There was one science teacher who used to go and lock himself in a cupboard when he was upset with the class and the kids would have to go and knock on the door and apologise to get him to come out. My dad was getting caned at the age of seven for not having all his school equipment in his bag, even though he wasn't told to bring it in. So they'd all go, right, if you've got your rulers, if you've got your rubbers, you've got your pencils. And if he didn't have one of them, he'd get the cane. Um, and so he was brought up and my, my gran was very, very moral. We've got a very strong morals in my family, which I now am proud of and like, and I'm drawn to other people with like, like morals, you know, with like-minded morals. But I think that thing of my dad saying you can make sure you do better next time is just his good natured attempt to, you know, make me be the best I could be. But the unfortunate side effect, which, you know, he wasn't aware of, was that that would mean I never really feel like I've done anything good enough. And that's just being a parent, isn't it? You know, you learn by by feeling like you're failing all the time, you know, trying to pass on the good stuff and uh, not realising the damage you do. That's just being being a parent. There's a uh, there's a cartoon series that I used to love in the late '90s called God, the Devil, and Bob, and uh, God was voiced by James Garner, uh, and uh, basically, so Bob was um, uh, a, a soul that both the devil and and God were essentially fighting over. And at one point, Bob's dad dies, and he's absolutely certain that his his sort of a dad has gone down to hell. And so he makes a deal with the devil that sort of like uh, that that he'll go down to hell and sort of have one final word with his dad. Only he can't find his dad there. Dad's in heaven. He says, "Why? This man was an absolute sod." And God goes, "Well, no, it was a lighter hit. He gave you a lighter hit than the one that he got, and he was giving given a lighter hit than the one he got, and things like that." And uh, that's always stayed with me. Alan Cummings played the devil. That's a fantastic anecdote, Doug. That's amazing, and it really does resonate. My parents had awful childhoods. Awful. 
and uh, yeah so everything they've done for us has been in spite of that and I'm really grateful to them for the childhood they gave us. I had my my parents' youth. They were so young. I grew up with such young, energetic parents. So they had no money, but I had their time and their energy, which is priceless, really. Um, you know, and then my younger parents, my younger siblings got the financial sort of, you know, side of it more than the energetic, youthful side. But yeah, my, my dad's dad, Kevin Neary, he was a very tricky customer. Uh, very greasy you know sort of slimy not a good family man and my dad said the one thing he wanted to give us was that there'd always be someone home when we got home because he often came home to an empty house and that's something he didn't want us to experience you know the other thing he was really upset about with his mum was he didn't know about jumble sales so when he was growing up he had nothing he had no money but there were jumble sales but his mother betty was too snobby to go to them so when he met my mum, she was a jumble queen, you know, her, the, the Welsh lot. And uh, he was really in heaven and he, and he was annoyed. He, I wish I'd known about this. I wish I'd known you could get bags of clothes for Tempe, you know. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, he, he did have a terrible um, father. And I'm very lucky to, to have the dad I've got. He's brilliant. He's just great. He's so positive and so wise. Yeah. Is he a bit of a clothes horse? No, he just wanted something to wear. He had a horrible green cardigan with a big zip up the front. He said he would have liked to just have a different cardigan. No, he's not a clothes source at all. He's really eccentric. Well, let me describe him to you a little bit. So he does naked yoga. Which <laughs> my grand, my mother was horrified talking on that. He goes running with a with a hat on with a light on the front of it in the dark, but he doesn't have the light on. It's just there in case he needs it. When he sees other people out on a walk, he'll tell them to put their phone away and enjoy the <laughs> enjoy the view. He goes on walks with a rubbish bag and collects other people's rubbish. And one day he found a six pack of uh, Fosters under a hedge. So he took it home and drank it. <laughs> he's, he's quite eccentric. He's brilliant. And, I, and we talk about interesting things. Like I said to him, so what do you do? I said, are you jogging and still? Are you jogging? He went, yeah, I do go for a run, but I also go for a walk. He said, because I like to take in the scenery. I said, what do you mean? He went, well, I like to look at the colours of the stones or the or listen to the bird song. And sometimes I'll shut my eyes. And that's the kind of conversation we have, which I love because it's not normal. It's not usual. You know, I think a usual conversation is what's happening with COVID? What's the prime minister doing now? You know, all that kind of stuff. And he's just not interested. His philosophy in life is que sera, sera, you know, that Doris Day song. Um, and he's it is just a breath of fresh air in lots of ways. Have you got a little picture of him now? Have I described him to you, or is it just too muddly? He's fantastic. I was going to say because you were saying about um, uh, this with your, your 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 grandmother yesterday. It's like we're talking about the lighter hit and so forth. I mean, it's like she came through some bits and pieces as well, didn't she? Yeah, my gran had an awful mother who was a she was probably a bit insane um, because she used to do things like wash my mother's my grandmother's mouth out with bleach and carbolic soap and stuff. Oh, she and so my gran was a real rebel, a real tomboy, a real tear away, and her her mother was trying to kind of tame her. Uh, but she, I think she was a bit insane. I haven't heard that many stories about her really because I don't really want to dredge up painful things for my gran. But um, my gran was very close to her dad. He was a gentle, good man. And uh, yeah, yeah, uh, I don't really know that much. But my gran's a funny one. My Betty, the Irish gran, she went to a school. She went to an all-girls school. And I think in 1920-something, that would have been quite unusual. For, you know, she's not a posh person. For a young girl in the 20s to get an education, I think is quite unusual. 
from the books I've read, because aren't women meant to go into service? Aren't they meant to go and be maids in other people's houses? So she, her mother knew the value of education, but my gran got expelled from school for sending a love letter to the boy in the college opposite. She said all the girls were doing it, but she was the only one who got caught. And she, when she told me, she wasn't laughing. And I laughed and she was really angry with me for laughing at that, at that story. Yeah, so she's, uh, <laughs> yeah, she's, uh, she's a bit um, sort of, unpredictable really you don't know where you are with my gran and that drives my dad up the wall you never know where you are with her nothing's ever easy everything's a huge palaver so when we're all sitting around for dinner she'll say Joanna do you want my potatoes and I'll go no thank you go on have some of my potatoes and my dad will say can you mum can you just eat your dinner we'll just give her a bit of my potato just eat your effing dinner it doesn't need to be a thing we're all bartering our food and it's like that it's really unrelaxing and my dad's much, much more laid back. He had to get away from them, to be honest. He just, he had to get away from her, really. I know, even though, she, the reason she moved down to Cornwall with my dad in the caravan is because she had such a terrible marriage with Kevin. My dad got her away. He said if he hadn't got her away, he, he, she probably, he would have killed her. My, my granddad would have killed my gran. So my dad literally, he just took her away from Coventry, took her away from his dad. And he looks back on that and thinks he maybe shouldn't have interfered, but he said he had no choice. He had to do it because she was in danger so yeah um it, uh, considering what they've been through they have incredibly wonderful healthy outlooks on life and the fact that she's still going 104 when kevin died she she said that they forgave each other she went to the hospital and uh, held his hand and looked into his eyes and she's and and i think she she said i you know i don't know if she actually said i forgive you but she said they looked into each other's eyes and they knew and so they ended on in a good way, you know, but uh, she was embarrassed for years about being separated. She wore a wet, she still wears a wedding ring because she's got children and she doesn't want people to think, how come you've got children out of wedlock? Imagine worrying about that in your late nineties. Strange, isn't it? Funny old families are so weird. Are you a very traditional person? In what way? I like routine. I love Irish food, bacon and cabbage, <laughs> boiled in a pan together. I love that. Traditional, I like I like routine. I like to know what's going on. And I always like to have the same flavour ice cream, if that's what you mean. No, I, actually, you, you, you were saying about how, you're, how uh, as you got older, you come to appreciate um, that strong moral compass that your, your gran and your, uh, and, your, and your father has and, uh, and things like that. And so I was wondering, sort of like, uh, are you somebody who likes things to be ordered? The reason I think I've got a strong moral upbringing is because I've been seeing people who don't have a strong moral upbringing and being outraged. And I've tried, I've realised how I was brought up differently. And I've met I've met people in Brighton who are even more moral than I am. And I really admire them. I really like a good set of morals. I think it's a it's a good thing to have. And I don't know where it comes from. I wondered if it comes from going to church. And so I've started taking I started before COVID taking my son to church because I wanted him to I don't believe in God. I'm not a religious person. I don't particularly like the church, but I quite like Methodist church and I quite would like him to know about the uh, Ten Commandments, you know, and, the, and to have that philosophy, that thing of thinking about what the consequence of things, accepting consequence. The things that my, my mum and dad taught me that I think is unusual is you don't, live with, you don't live beyond your means. So you earn the money that you earn and you spend that money and you don't spend any other money. So you live within your means and um, you you 
what, what are the other struggles? Your manners, good manners are important to me. So now I've got a child, you see, I'm kind of, you, you sort of look at your upbringing, don't you? And think, what am I going to pass on? And what am I going to let go of? And I am quite uh, fierce with those, with manners and with uh, morals and with being truthful, the importance of being truthful and being a trustworthy person. I am passing that on. I don't know if you'll hate me for that in years or not, but I, but I've been taught it's important. And so I'm, I've, I've held on to that being important but in terms of tradition I'm not a stay-at-home mum I'm not fulfilling the typical mum role I'm still trying to have my own career and I did have my child for quite late in life so I didn't get married at 22 or anything so in that sort of tradition in that sense I'm not traditional you know in a way my parents were, are quite eccentric but they're not hippies they've always worked you know so the, the closest way I could describe them is to say that they're hippies because they kind of um, you know, they got long, they both had long hair at their wedding. And uh, well, <laughs> my dad said I would have loved their wedding. He said that people just wandered in off the street and joined in. <laughs> they all had chips at the above the gas showrooms. And my Welsh nan was, was working around the room, my great grandmother, drinking everyone's drinks behind their backs. <laughs> and my Irish family are hilarious. I got sent a fantastic DVD of um, Irish. Uh, the Super 8 films put together, compiled by my relative in Dublin. And it's, it's, it's incredible. There's this wedding party. Here we are at the wedding. And it's, it's this incredibly dour voice. Here we are at the wedding, the vicar's dancing with the aunties, as you can see. I think it was in the 60s, this wedding. And now we're all going to repair for something to eat, to move any food that might have got lodged. <laughs> it's like Father Ted. Oh, when Father Ted came along, my dad was delighted. Oh, my dad said it was like a breath of fresh air, having that lot laughed at. My gran, she used to go, Joanna, would you like a sweet? Would you want a sweetie, Joanna? Oh, yes, please, Nan. Well, you can't have one, can you, with your teeth? Jesus. It's, it's just such hard work. <laughs> and when I went to Dublin, maybe my dad went to a car boot sale, and this woman said to me, ah, oh, for God's sake, would you look at them shoes? Look at that. And she picked up this boot. Would you look at that boot? Isn't that beautiful? You get it. Oh, for God's sake, there's only one. What do you want that for? <laughs> what is this thing? What is that? Giving and taking away. It's really strange. You're listening to the Plastic Podcasts. Hashtag we all come from somewhere else. Speaking of hashtags, feel free to follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Ireland, Wales, the Midlands, Cornwall, with so many different influences on her life and with such a variety of talents, I wonder if Jo Neary gets to consider how she's got where she is today. Or is this all simply a case of, to coin a phrase, this is your life? I think with any anyone it's just this is your life, isn't it? You don't know any different. You don't, you don't, you don't really analyse what you've got, do you, when you're in it? Remember when I first did comedy and I went to Edinburgh and I was in my early 30s and the Times interviewed me and they said, so what's it like being a woman in comedy? And I was just floored by that question because I'd never thought about it. I didn't set out to do anything thinking, well, I'm a woman, so I better do that. Who does that? You, I mean, nobody, do that. nobody goes, because I'm a man, I'm going to build a wall. This just doesn't happen, does it? You do, you're Joe, you're Doug, you're you. And uh, you don't really analyse that stuff. And, and all of the things that happen, I never have regrets in life because all of it shapes us, doesn't it? I think my only regret in life is not buying a house in Brighton in 1993. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> what, led, what, what led you into, into, into getting into comedy? Well, nobody was going to the theatre. So I did um, fine art. I did art foundation and then I did visual and performing arts at Brighton University 
and it doesn't really um it, performance art is quite a strange one especially in the 80s and the early 90s it wasn't really very flourish it wasn't flourishing really and nobody was going to see weird theater as much as they were going to see comedy so by the mid 90s and i and i kind of knew i was funny because when i tried to be serious i'd make people laugh so I think in 1997, I just turned, switched my entry in the Brighton Festival brochure from theatre to comedy, and suddenly I was selling out. I was doing the same material, but I just moved it in the brochure, and I thought this is where the audience is. It's, it felt like comedy was like was becoming like football. It was so huge and popular. It's what people wanted. Whereas with theatre, I don't know what it was about theatre, but maybe it's just so broad. You don't know what you're going to get. Are you going to get a man in a pair of pants rolling about on the floor speaking in French for three hours? Or are you going to get 10 people all wearing blue pretending to scrape a wall? Or are you going to get Lindsay Kemp <laughs> with a chariot in the air on a rod being very entertaining and throwing flowers about? It's just so broad, but comedy, although obviously comedy is objective, people are probably more willing to take a punt with it. I was in Cornwall at art college, I, I, I do my foundation. I said to my friends who were in a theatre company, I said, I want to go to college and do theatre and art. And they said, well, if you want to do that, you better put on a show then. And I went, all right then. So I got my friend to give me her front room and I advertised around the art college that I was putting on a show. I'd never done this before. I was 17 and everyone came. It was on a Sunday. Jesus, I've, got, I've still got the video of it. It's excruciating. All of the tutors from Falmouth Art College were there all of the degree students, it was just ridiculous. There were like four, five deep, these and a long room, a big room, five or deep people standing in the doorway. And we, me and my friends had just cobbled together some weird sketches. One of them was an impression of the student union, uh, head of student union, Warwick. Um, uh, it was just a ridiculous series of sketches. It was a monologue I did. And as I did it, I was smoking because I was so nervous. I'd never done any performance before. And my pajamas caught fire. So I was sort of patting them out while I was doing this monologue. And that time in about 1989, Victoria Wood was on television. And so there was a woman on her own doing it. And that was achievable. It was much easier to be a woman on your own in a room doing something than it was to put on a production with the set and lighting and a crew. And so I basically did my own version of uh, Victoria Wood's show in this front room to prove that I could do it. Oh God, I, I couldn't do that now. I was so foolhardy and rave. <laughs> I've still got a video of it, it's unbearable. It's excruciating. When uh, people do uh, comedy in all its various different forms and so on, I mean, there, there, is, a, there is a tendency to, to, to think nowadays um, that there's a kind of element of confessional to it um that it's a person's perspective being being put out there uh, you use an awful lot of characters uh, and, and things like that i mean so are there extensions of you or is this a way of actually not talking about you they're definitely me i've recently realized that the one thing all my characters have got in common is they're all deluded and i am very deluded i'm very very quick to dream very quick to imagine that i'm something i'm not when me and my friend claire used to go and teach in italy we used to learn britney spears routines together with the dance tutors they used to teach us and we weren't all teaching we'd get the dance teach teacher to teach us these brilliant beyonce and britney spears routines and in my mind i, I looked exactly like britney spears um, so yeah, all my characters are deluded and I am. And also I love comedy that comes from a very warm place. So when I see something funny in someone else, it's not that I'm laughing at them. It's because I recognize myself in them. And the only time I've ever tried to do comedy from a nasty place, it hasn't worked. So I tried to do a character based on Kirsty Allsop because I didn't like her. 
And so I tried to do a character based on that and it just wasn't funny. It was too vitriolic. It was just full of hate. I just didn't work. So that maybe, maybe that's what I got from Victoria Wood. Maybe the fact that I don't have a huge ego myself means I don't like to look down on anybody. And this last year's really heightened that. This made me really, really aware. Like there are things now that I'm not gonna laugh at anymore. There's things have changed. Um, I think we've become much more sensitive to each other. And the fact that some people are in a, in a very difficult place and you've got to just have that in mind really. It's changing. It's gonna be interesting coming out of this and doing comedy again, because it's gonna be different, I think. At least for me anyway. What was your first laugh? The first laugh you got? Probably Laurel and Hardy, um, uh, trailer of Lonesome Pine. Oh, do you mean me? Or you, not me as a child laughing at something? It's going to be a two-way question. Yeah, so, so you've, got, you've answered the second half first. So, so go, let's go for the first half second. So what was the one that you got? That, that, do, you, do you recall of getting, getting a laugh? My first laugh was being on stage at school, age 15, and doing a poetry night and uh, dressing up and doing a character poem, doing a characterful poem. And it was an incredible feeling. And then the next year playing Paulie Yates in a Christmas show and uh, yeah, doing an impression of Paulie Yates age 16, 15 or 16 at the Christmas show. It was an incredible, incredible feeling. Just, yeah, to make a whole room full of people laugh with a stupid voice and it'd be really fun. It was fantastic, yeah, I remember that. But um, then I, you see, you can't be funny at art college. And I've had this conversation with Adam Buxton because Adam Buxton, listen, you know, you asked about, do you get drawn to like people? Johnny Vegas and Adam Buxton um, are both friends and they, are, they both went to art college. And I do think you find each other and Adam did sculpture at art college. And I was drawn to sculpture too, that was my first love. But he was told off in, on his course for seeming to use the course to make films and get onto television, he told me. And he said, we were talking about how there wasn't room for comedy at art school. It's, it, especially in the late 80s and the 90s, people were very earnest. And uh, yeah, it wasn't seen as being art to be funny, which is a shame really, isn't it? As a kid, did you do that thing of making up your own shows and, and, and things like that? Yes, tragically. I, went, I remember sitting, making all the masks for a play about the Minotaur and writing the script and having no one to be in it. And so I use that now in my comedy. You know, I'm sure I've done a character that's, uh, you know, putting on a show and no one wants to be in it. And I'm kind of rewrite, apart, writing a part for everyone in the class, yeah. Now when I do my puppet shows for children, I just, I just had a sudden realisation of going, I'm doing everything I did when I was seven. I'm doing everything I did when I was 15, when I was 21, when I was 25. It just all keeps coming round. You know that thing where you go, I'm going to look at my diary from when I was 13 and have a good laugh at the idiot I was and use it for my comedy writing. And you go back to it and you go, I haven't changed. You would love to laugh at that stupid little person who didn't know anything, but actually you go, no, I'm no different. I can't laugh at that person. I'm still like it. <laughs> and I love that. I love how things just keep going. So I said to my friend Ben, who's a writer for children's TV, I said, what do you do about paper, about paperwork in your home, about having reams and reams of writing? And he said, throw it all away and trust that it's all in there. And I think that that's true. I think that, you know, that little, that little person, that little creator, that never goes away, it never changes. And sometimes when you think you've got a new idea for something, I don't know if you do this, I go, I've got a new idea. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a recording of this. And then you find a notebook from 20 years ago, it's got that idea written in it, you know, and you think it's an original idea and it's just you churning and churning. <laughs> I wish I had more clarity of thought in life. That's the one thing I'd like to have. 
when we were talking about you and your dad, you talked about going around uh, Dublin for Bloomsday uh, uh, and things like that. I mean, Cy, do you feel a sense of um, having uh, having an Irish heritage? I'm very proud of my Irish heritage. I went to Galway last year and did a comedy show. And I spoke to, I think, the taxi driver. The taxi driver was a beautiful man. He drove me all around Galway and gave me a tour and showed me all of the interesting historical sites and the terrible history. It was fascinating. And I said to him, you know, my dad's from Dublin. I said, I, I don't really understand the politics of Ireland. I don't, I'm not very up on history, but I'm really, really proud to be Irish. And I don't know if, I, I can't remember what we were talking, we were sort of talking about the fact that Northern Ireland is part of the UK. And I said, for me, I feel like I'm in Ireland. I don't feel like I'm in the UK. I feel like I'm in Ireland and I feel like it's one thing. And is that a wrong thing to feel? And I think he said, no, it's a lovely thing to feel. And I feel the same way. And I, I don't know if there's, you know, different ways of feeling Irish. I don't know if there's different heritages. But the fact is, my family are from Ayr. And my father, Noel Thomas Neary, Nal Dinar in Gaelic. <laughs> I don't know. I'm really, I'm really proud of my Irish heritage. Um, although I don't really feel like I've got much claim to it because I was born in Coventry. But one day I'm going to perfect my grand's accent and do a brilliant tribute to her. One day. We've talked an awful lot about the past and so like uh, and, and, and things being passed on and so forth. So when when you look at your son, um, what do you see of yourself in there? Oh, I don't know. I don't know actually. He's only he's only nine. He loves reading books and kind of getting lost in a world. And it's very fun for me to bring him into a little world. You know. And see his eyes glaze over. When I read him books at night, he mouths the... So say, for example, I'm reading him a Biggles story and it says something like, Biggles gave a start. He'll lie next to me and he'll go... And he's acting it out in his head. And I love that thing of that the way that children get completely absorbed in a thing. They get into the zone, don't they? And as adults in our creative lives, we get into the zone still, don't we? So I'm, I'm happy that I can... I, I don't know if I'm actually sharing that or if that's just in him because he's a child and I'm still like it. I'm still acting like a child. I'm not sure. But yeah, that thing of getting lost in your own world is there, I think. And I'm passing him on my good morals. He knows that you do not lie. <laughs> You've been listening to the Plastic Podcasts, Tales of the Irish Diaspora, with me, Doug Devaney, and my guest, Joe Neary. The Plastic Pedestal was provided by Patrick Gall, Angela Billing, and Niall Gibney of the Liverpool Irish Centre, and music was by Jack Devaney. You can find us at www.plasticpodcasts.com, email us at theplasticpodcasts at gmail.com, or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. The Plastic Podcasts are sponsored using public funding by Arts Council England.